are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. On this podcast, we discuss all kinds of things having to do with lighthouses, mostly their history and preservation. My co-host is Michelle Jewell Shaw of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, a chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation. Hi, Michelle. Hello, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Michelle, we've mentioned a few times that you're a lighthouse volunteer, a mom, a student, and a photographer. I know that for your photography business, you use the name Seashells Photography. What kind of photography do you do? And how can people find out more about that? I really enjoy doing landscape photography. I have done a few weddings, um, some engagement photos, senior photos, things like that. But my love is photographing lighthouses and seascapes and things like that. You could find more about, I have a Facebook page called, called Seashells Photography on Facebook. So you could definitely search up that page and see some of the photos that I've taken. Well, I I thought we were overdue in mentioning a little bit more about that. You do very beautiful work. Well, thank you. Glad we're finally able to to say a little bit more about that, and I hope people will check it out. So, Seashells Photography. Thanks, Michelle. Today on Lighthearted, we're going to take a trip to the West Coast. The West Coast of New England, that is. Did you know that New England has a West Coast, Michelle? Would you be talking about Vermont, maybe? Exactly. People are often surprised when they find out there are several lighthouses on Lake Champlain, which forms the border between Vermont and New York. Today we're going to talk about a couple of the lighthouses on the northern side of the lake on the Vermont side, right near the border with Quebec, Canada. The lighthouses we're going to talk about are privately owned, and we'll be talking with the owner. Let's start by giving some history of Lake Champlain and its lighthouses. Sure, Jeremy. Lake Champlain, bordering New York, Vermont, and Quebec, was once a bustling waterway. The opening of the Champlain Canal in 1823 meant faster shipping to New York, and navigational aids were needed. More than 10 lighthouses were built on the lake in the 19th century on the New York and Vermont sides. Isle Lamotte, pronounced locally as Isle Lamotte, is at the northern end of the lake, very close to the border with Quebec. The island became the site of the first French settlement in Vermont in 1666. The Shrine of St. Anne stands today where the French, under Captain Sieur de Lamotte, built Fort St. Anne in 1666. The island was attacked by British gunboats in the War of 1812. The Battle of Plattsburgh followed. It was a major American victory and the largest battle ever on Lake Champlain. A light was established at Isle Lamotte about 1829. This light was actually a lantern placed in an upper window of a stone house belonging to Ezra Pike Jr. The house still stands and is a private residence. In 1856, a stone pyramid with a lantern was erected. There was no house near the beacon, so the keeper had to travel a good distance to tend the light. Increased shipping traffic in the area made a more permanent lighthouse a necessity. In 1879, Congress appropriated $5,000 for a better light and a keeper's house. The present 25-foot cast iron lighthouse was built in 1880 with a wooden keeper's dwelling. The tower, equipped with a sixth-order Fresnel lens, displayed a fixed white light. 
This light was 46 feet above water and its light was visible for 13 miles. Wilbur F. Hill was keeper of the old beacon starting in 1871 and he remained at the lighthouse station until 1919, serving 48 years as keeper. During his years at Isle Lamont Light, Keeper Hill received awards for having the best kept station in the district. Hill also maintained a 100-acre farm nearby. He retired from lighthouse keeping about six weeks before he died. The station's final keeper was William Grant, the nephew of Maine Lighthouse heroine Abby Burgess Grant. A skeleton tower with an automatic beacon replaced the lighthouse in 1933. The station was sold into private hands and the lighthouse remained dark for nearly 70 years. In 1949, the property was bought by the Clark family. Meanwhile, a handsome 40-foot stone lighthouse tower was built in 1858 at Windmill Point in Alberg, Vermont, about six miles north of Isle Lamont. Windmill Point Lighthouse is sometimes referred to as one of the Three Sisters Lighthouses of Lake Champlain. Its siblings are the similar towers built around the same time on the New York side of the lake at Point O'Roche and Crown Point. The tower at Windmill Point originally held a sixth order Fresnel lens exhibiting a fixed white light. Windmill Point's last keeper was Edward H. Hill, son of Wilbur Hill, longtime keeper of Isle Lamont Light. Edward Hill and his wife Lillian raised eight children at the light station. In 1931, the light was removed from the lighthouse at Windmill Point and it was relocated to a nearby steel skeleton tower. The lighthouse and keeper's house passed into private hands. In 1963, Lockwood Clark, better known as Lucky Clark, purchased the property, making two lighthouses in his family. In 2001, the Coast Guard began looking at the possibility of reactivating some of Lake Champlain's lighthouses. On August 7, 2002, National Lighthouse Day, over 300 onlookers cheered as the lighthouse was relighted at Windmill Point. For the first time in almost seven decades, Lake Champlain had a working lighthouse. Then, on the evening of October 5, 2002, the Isle of Mont Lighthouse returned to service at dusk. Attendance on the relighting ceremony was estimated at more than 300. Local school children had the honor of relighting the lighthouse. The group included Lois Cameron, great-granddaughter of Keeper Wilbur Hill. As the light came on at 6.18 p.m., a cannon blazed and Lucky Clark vigorously rang the bell near the lighthouse. In December, I had the chance to talk on the phone with Rob Clark, owner of the Isle Lamont and Windmill Point Lighthouses. This interview is a bit longer than most of the ones we've had in this podcast. In the past, we've broken up some of the longer interviews into multiple episodes, but I've decided to keep this one in its entirety in this episode. We'll include one short break in the middle. I've known Rob Clark for close to 20 years, and you can think of this as a friendly conversation between friends. Let's listen to our conversation now. I am on the phone with Rob Clark, and Rob, we've known each other for a while. I have visited your lighthouses a a few times. It's been a while since I've been there. I uh, visited both uh, Windmill Point Lighthouse and Isle Lamont Lighthouse uh, going back, I think the first time going back just about 20 years, and I visited them both two or three times back then with you and your dad and your your mother, and uh, you were all so, so hospitable to me back then. And I 
I apologize that it's been so long since I've been there. Uh, right. and yeah, yeah, but it's it's great talking to you today. So thanks thanks so much for well, for joining me today. Yes, and thanks for inviting me, Jeremy, and thanks for all you do for the lighthouse community. That's for sure. Oh, thanks so much. I was just talking to my wife uh, just a couple of nights ago. We were talking about it, and we're planning a trip to Vermont for this summer. So I'm really, really hoping we'll be seeing you this summer. I so, sure hope so, too. Yeah. Uh, your your dad was, was an amazing guy. You know, I always think of him as a, a real gentleman. He was just always so so pleasant and such a, such a nice guy to deal with. He had a 50-year career as a machinist. He was in the U.S. Navy. He was a World yeah. War II veteran. He served in Guam. And I, I really always uh, felt that he had a, a strong love for those two lighthouses. What do you think it was about the lighthouses that he loved so much? Uh, was he was he much into boating, or was there some? Yeah, well, yes, yeah, yes, he, he was. was. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that uh, to mind, uh, Jeremy. My dad's first and true love was boating. Okay. Uh, especially wooden, old wooden inboard. In other words, the engines inside, not as opposed to the outboard engines. Inboard watercraft. And that was from from the day he was a young, young boy when he got up here on Lake Champlain, uh, being right on the lake with his parents. Uh, he just took a love for these, these boating things and nautical things. And, and uh, like I say, uh, if there's any regrets, uh, the only ones would be is I wish that we could have spent more time with his boats because he, uh, like I said, he just had such a passion for those boats. And a matter of fact, uh, to tell you a little more about the story, when he was uh, in the World War II, uh, you know, there again, you have time on your hands in between your duties to think about better things to come when you get out of the doggone war. And he, uh, like I say, these boats, they required, uh, I don't know if you know much about older boats, but the way the planking is made, you have to let the boat down slowly in some kind of a sling to let them soak up so that the so that the water can just slowly go in between the planks and expand, and then you know, take it, take its take its natural shape without because uh, if you if you just drop it in the water, it sink it. You know, it just it has to slowly soak up, which is the words I'm looking for here. So anyway, uh, before he left to go overseas, as he said in the war, over to Guam. Uh, he had started out of all out of steel, out of metal. He had started building his own. Derek or Crane for doing this type of apparatus or doing this type of boat boat work and so forth and boat launching. Well, turns out after the war, the quarries, Isla Mott has several quarries. There's one still active. Some have been preserved as part of the, you know, the historic preservation movement over there and so forth. But on the south end, and coincidentally down where the stone was quarried, for the Windmill Point Lighthouse, because that's blue limestone. That, that lighthouse is all made from that type of material. Right. And that was all quarried from Isla Mott, believe it or not. And anyway, in the quarries, there is what there is known as a guy derrick. Now, this is uh, a wooden, upright, 40-foot tall thing with a arm that comes out on it with, with cables and hooks and so forth. And it's suspended by guy wires. And so he ended up getting the thing, Jeremy, and that's quite a story in itself. Uh, Like I say, it's all wood, and he took the thing down on the south end of the island, and uh, he dropped both of the sticks from the the derrick right into the lake, and they uh, took a boat, and they brought the the two, they dragged the two of these, these main timbers across the lake, 
uh, up the Great Chazy River and right up behind the house here, which is where we're on. We're on the Great Chazy River here in Champlain. And he set the darn thing up to launch his boat. Hmm. And uh, believe it or not, it's still standing. Uh, I try to keep that going, too, while I'm not working on, <coughs> working on the lighthouses and so forth. But uh, anyway, we, we last launched one of his boats in 1989, and we went for one, one last nice trip. And like I said, I, I wish so much that we could have had more time to devote to these boats, and there's so much more that he had to, to teach me that I'll, I'll have to learn on my own now. But uh, anyway, that's, that's part of his boating world, i tell you something of that nature. Yeah, wow, I had no idea. That's really interesting. Uh, if we could skip ahead to uh, a little more recent history, uh, let's talk about the uh, the relighting of your your two lighthouses yes. uh, okay. in the in the early two thousands. First of all, uh, I understand one of the influences that had something to do with the the relighting of your lighthouses was uh, Admiral Bowman of the Coast Guard. That's so, right, uh, mm-hmm. Dick Dick Bowman. We always refer to him as the Admiral, even though he liked to be called Dick. But uh, the Admiral was uh, just an amazing man, and, and uh, let me tell you a little bit about how that came to be. Back, oh God, late 60s, early 70s, Dad wrote to the, as you know, the, the Lighthouse Service became part of the Coast Guard. So he wrote to the 1st District down in Boston and asking about various questions about the lighthouses. This is years ago, and my gosh, never didn't hear a word back, didn't hear a boom, absolutely nothing. And one day, one day, out of the clear blue sky, come this letter. And it's from this fella, Dick Admiral Bowman. And dear Mr. Clark, I got all your information that you sent. My my aide, Captain Parr, found this stuff, and uh, he brought it to my attention. And may I come visit you folks? Well, he just wrote back, yes, sir. We're glad to see you. You let us know. We'll be there with bells on, as they say, you know. And so anyway, uh, like I said, the uh, the Admiral came with his wife, Dottie. And uh, this is uh, in September of 1988. And uh, the Admiral, like I say, met us at Isla Mont Lighthouse. And my mom baked up a nice pie, and we got together, and we all sat down at the kitchen table, and he talked, and he says, what do you guys think about putting that light back in your lighthouse? And, of course, we're sitting there, my gosh, saying, well, you know, Admiral, we've thought about this many times, but, you know, nothing ever came of it. And so that's how that all began. And like I say, uh, over the many years, we became very, very friendly uh, with the Admiral. We became a good friend and a good mentor for me personally. And uh, the Admiral, uh, if you wanted to go see a lighthouse, you just had to ask Dick. And the Admiral would get you in there because he had he had to pull to get anywhere you wanted, basically. Huh. And anyway, uh, back in 2003, in February, my dad and I took him up on the offer to go down to Florida and visit him, and we went and climbed the Cape Canaveral Lighthouse. Wow. Which was, which was just a, a real treat for me because I'm a, I'm a space nut. I love all the Cape Canaveral and the Apollo and Gemini and Mercury missions. And, of course, when you're up at the top of the lighthouse, you can see every one of where all those gantries were right from the very beginning of the first launch back in 1950. Right. So that was quite an experience. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get back to that the the space reference in a in a second, but uh, I just want to mention that uh I didn't know Admiral Bowman personally, but 
I understand that he was a, a, quite a lighthouse aficionado, obviously, and uh, it, he climbed hundreds of lighthouses, and I think he used to leave his business card behind. In fact, I remember seeing you his know, business card in yeah, some lighthouses. Yeah, Jeremy, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that, because I call that our lighthouse graffiti. <laughs> as you, as you yeah. may not know, or may or may not know, uh, my dad and I also had a card. It says 45th Parallel Lights, Our Lamont, Windmill Point, Rob and Lucky Clark, and it's giving our contact information. I, I have that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I have that well, card. Yeah. The Admiral had his, and it said, uh, Lighthouse Inspector Retired. And it, on his card was Hospital Point, which is where the Admiral, all, and matter of fact, the commander of the 1st District still stays at Hospital Absolutely, Point. Absolutely, yep. I, I've been there in at receptions in the Keeper's House where the Admiral yeah. lives, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the Admiral was very proud of his lighthouse. As a matter of fact, he always wore a cap that had that on there. And his wife, Dottie, was an expert cross-stitcher, and she used to make all these fancy shirts, and, and she would cross-stitch on the lighthouse, you know, of, of whatever lighthouse it was, onto his lapel on his, on his shirts. And the requirement, requirement for her doing that is he needed to climb to the very top of the lighthouse. So every time we'd get together, he'd say, we got to shoot for the top. Huh. And uh, I just want to, I want to, we, unfortunately, the Admiral passed age 80, on February 15, 2005, and my mom and dad and I, uh, we all attended his funeral services at the uh, National uh, Cemetery at Arlington, Arlington National Cemetery. And I have, I'm going to read you just the last section here of of the program because it it uh, really uh, is impressive to me. It says a noted lighthouse expert and historian, Admiral Bowman, climbed 680 of the 740 lighthouses in the United States. Hmm. He married the love of his life, Dorothy Dottie H. Bowman, in 1948. They had four children and three grandchildren. Admiral Bowman always said that he wanted to be married for 50 years, command a large Coast Guard cutter, and become an admiral. He got all his wishes. (laughs) You couldn't ask for more than that. You got that right. (laughs) Wow. Oh, that's fantastic. And returning to that reference to you being a, a big fan of the the space program, yeah, uh, yeah I was just uh, watching the the video of the relighting of the Isle of Mott lighthouse, and you made reference to the fact. Yeah. Well, let me. I don't want to say it. I want you to say it. Uh, to tell everybody how you envisioned the uh, the Isle of Mott lighthouse when you were a kid. Yeah. Well, like I said, when I was a young boy, that was my rocket ship, and back. During that time, was when they were just starting to go to the moon, I was just a little little boy at the time, and uh, but old enough to realize, you know, just what it was all about. And uh, matter of fact, uh, like I said, being a very young boy, uh, we went down. We didn't have a television back then, and we went down to uh, to a, a good friends, the Benicios, on the south end of the island, and we watched on their little black and white TV. And like I said, so I always envisioned climbing up those ladders, going up into the the landing room that's going up into the capsule of the of the of the rocket ship you know <laughs> that's that's great that you know uh, i can see that yeah well you must have been really small i mean you're a number of years younger than i am and i was i was about 13 uh with the when the moon landing happened and i was i was really really into it at the time too yeah but, so uh getting back to the the relighting i know that you and your father worked really hard in preparation 
for that. He put a lot of lot of sweat and toil and and money uh, into that. Can you yeah. talk talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, you know, like I said, during the time that uh, we were talking about doing this, uh, initially, what they were going to do, uh, Jeremy, is they were going to uh, the Coast Guard officials. We were, I was actually we were putting a brand new roof over the windmill point at the time. And I was up there working on the roof with another man and another fellow we had there, I had hired to help me out doing the project. And uh, Dad was down on the ground uh, bossing the job, and these Coast Guard fellows came up and uh, started talking to him. And so I finally got down, and we took him up to the lighthouse, and that's when we started. This is back in 2001 now. This is back when, you know, they were reinvestigating what they were going to do because they ended up tearing down the skeletal towers, or they did one, take take the one down at Windmill Point, rather, and they were going to put new towers, scaffold-type towers, which would be safer for the men to climb on and and, uh, more modern and so forth. And so anyway, this is how it started, like I said, is that they, uh, they looked at our, inspected both our lighthouses, and they said, you know, Mr. Clark, they said, uh, we've been in a lot of lighthouses, but yours are some of the best, well-maintained we've ever climbed. And, uh, you know, what do you think about putting a light in here instead of putting one of these hideous towers up? And Dad said, absolutely, that's that's what I've always dreamed of wanting to do. And so anyway, like I said, what, what happened is, uh, Jeremy, is that, uh, you know, they have a division up in Portland, Maine, that does a lot of this retrofit type of work. And uh, I won't mention any names here, but some some of the fellows came down, and, and there again, I I don't I don't want to demonize anybody, but they wanted to get her done, as they say, you know, get the job done and as quick as possible and as cheap as possible. And Dad and I got talking about it, and we said, you know, these are our lighthouses, and we want this thing the way we want it. And so we communicated back and forth, and in the, and we ended up having to fabricate a pedestal. The pedestal is what holds the apparatus, the light itself. And what happened was is that when they decommissioned these lighthouses, 31 at Windmill and 33 at at Isla Mott, respectively, uh, I'm sure those folks never envisioned these lighthouses ever holding the light again. So for some reason, at Isla Mott, they stripped it right down to the floor, no pedestal, just the, the holes where it was mounted. That's all you could see of it. And so, fortunately, over to Windmill, they left the old cast iron because it was more or less into the stonework, the way they built it, and I guess they thought that it was better not to disturb it. So they left it, thank God. And so it's good that they did because I was able to take the dimensions off of that, and we fabricated one all out of uh, what I, out of steel pipe, basically, and I call it like pancaking because what it is is you have to take several different diameter pipes and cut them and, you know, make it make it look like uh, a real pedestal would have looked, you know. And uh, like I said, we were we were very adamant about doing things right because there again, the Coast Guard guys, they wanted to bore a hole right through the, the bulkhead, you know, and we said no. We said there's there's ventilators, as you know, in lighthouses, usually 90 degrees apart, the vent uh, when the kerosene lamp was in there. Right. And so we ended up making an adapter plate, both outside and inside, and we ended up doing all the, the framework for the solar panels. Uh, we, we took 20-foot lengths of angle iron, cut them up, you know, to, to make up the, the triangular-type uh, structure and mounted it, and we've got it so that where it mounts onto the railing, that it's all bolted on there. So if for some reason they ever you want to take that off and change it, 
there's absolutely no damage to the original 1800s lighthouse that's taken place. It's, everything's good to go, you know. And like I said, that was uh, obviously a heck of a lot more work than it would have been to, to take some shortcuts. But that gives you a little bit of an idea of what was involved on that. Why don't we talk a little bit about what, what the uh, relighting meant to you and your father? I know it, it meant a great deal to, to both of you. So uh, what, what did it uh, mean to you? It just did a, in, a, in a personal sense to you and your father? Yeah, that's, that's a good question, uh, Jeremy. You know, it's, uh, like I said, it's, it's, you can't really put it into words. It, it's, uh, it's a feeling. How do, you, how do you really explain it? It's something, well, someone once said, the work of today is the history of tomorrow, and we are its makers. And I think that that sums it up right there, you know? That's a good way to put it, yeah. And uh, it had to be a kind of a, an emotional uh, time oh, for your for your father, too. Very very much so, especially for my dad, because, you know, this is something he, before I was in, came into existence, he was, you know, preparing in his own way, uh, you know, for this, even though it seemed like an impossible dream at the time, you know? And uh, like I said, and I'm... I'm just more or less trying to follow his footsteps as I have as I've always done, you know. Yeah, it's like a lighthouse uh, isn't really a lighthouse without a light. Uh, one thing my my wife likes to say is that a lighthouse without a light is it's like it's like it has no soul. Right, uh, that's yeah. kind of a good way to put it. I think so too. Yeah. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting it by becoming a member of the U.S. Lighthouse Society or by making a donation. Also, if you're a lighthouse volunteer or if you work at a lighthouse, we'd love to hear from you. Please email me at jeremy at uslhs.org and let me know why you do what you do. We'd like to include your comments in this podcast. Again, please email me at jeremy at uslhs.org. Let's return to the interview with Rob Clark owner of the Vermont Lighthouses at Windmill Point in Isle Lamont. Let's back up a little bit and talk about the history of the, the lighthouses a little bit, if we could. Yeah. Wilbur Hill uh, at Isle Lamont, he had actually one of the longest careers at a single lighthouse of any keeper I've ever heard about. Uh, I think it was, it was nearly a half a century. Can you uh, say a little bit about Wilbur Hill and his career? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, uh, there again, like I said, I know that's kind of a two-part question, if you will, of what it meant to me. Well, when I got working on these things, um, I, you know, there again, I, I took the pride to try to do everything right, polish up the brass, and the the wooden encasements on the brass ventilators, some of them had either been damaged or just broken or, you know, remember, we're talking a lot of years in that heat from the lantern room, you know, it's like a giant greenhouse up there. And so anyway, I ended up taking those things apart and, you know, reworking them. And on the back side of these wooden enclosures, it said for the Lake Champlain Lighthouses. Somebody wrote that with a pencil 150 years ago, you know. And it was just, I said, wow, this thing, that's that's something from the past. And I said, i I got to do right. And, and Wilbur Hill was known for having the best-kept lighthouse on the lake. He got several awards, uh, quite a man, apparently. And like I said, I said, my gosh, you just got to, something said, to, something inside me said, I got to do right by this fellow. And uh, anyway, speaking of the Hill family, 
during, when we did the relighting, I mean, people came out of the woodwork, let's face it. There was people we never heard of, and, you know, it was really, it got everybody's attention. It was front-page news on several of the newspapers. Vermont Life picked up the story. Uh, anyway, like I said, uh, with Wilbur, uh, his family, uh, his great-great-granddaughter, actually Lois Cameron, uh, was we did a countdown for the lighthouse, and she actually led that. And consequently, her the her uh, daughter's daughter, so it'd be like a great great granddaughter, is currently the uh, town clerk at Isla Mont. So oh, wow. the Hill the Hill family still has you know uh, some presence on the island. Wow. And and, and there there again, there's I don't know how to describe it, but <laughs> it's it's kind of like the, the two lighthouses is a connection between them, and it goes way back because. Um, Edward Hill, which was Wilbur's son, was born at Isle And he was born there on uh, May 10th, I believe. Let's see here. Yeah, May 10th, 1881. And uh, he became the last keeper over there. At Windmill Point. At Windmill Point, yes. And his dad, of course, was the keeper at the island. And anyway, like I say, we ended up having a reunion of all the remaining hills that, you know, were, were connected to Wilbur. And it actually made the Lighthouse Digest in the, uh, I believe, the November issue of 2003. So, like I said, and Wilbur, he was quite a guy. Like I said, I, I wish I, uh, I'm still learning more. I'm still in touch with some of the Hill family. He was a correspondent, especially now at this time, Christmas time. And uh, I know that uh, Wilbur's first wife passed on, and his second wife was a 16-year-old girl. So uh, he, uh, like I said, quite a guy. Well, you know, I don't know how you feel about uh, the possibility of uh, either place being, let's say, haunted or anything like that. But, you know, I always say some people uh, wonder about such things. And I always say that whether you believe literally in such things or not, the, the spirits of these people, the, the keepers and these the families, the spirits of these people are, are there no matter how you see it, whether you see Absolutely. it literally Absolutely. or figuratively or however you want to see it. But the, yes. the spirits yes. are very, very much it, there. In some in some way or shape or fashion, yes. Yeah. So, uh, any other anything else about any of the the keepers at, at either of the lighthouses? That... Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there again, um, I'm still learning stuff about these lighthouses, even though I've been involved with them since I took my first breath. You know, and I just want to mention Candace Clifford. You know, the late Candace. Absolutely. Uh, I I had spoke with Candace. I never actually met her. We talked on the phone, and she was going to do some research for me down in Washington to get more information on these lighthouses. And sadly, she wasn't able to you know, live long enough to do so. But uh, from what I've been able to gather on, on some of it on my own accord, uh, the first keeper at Windmill was a lady by the name of Clarinda Mott, and she was the daughter of Joseph Mott. And she became the first keeper. And... <clears throat> Her uncle, I believe, was Danfort Mott, and that was who the government bought the property from. So there again, I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming that he probably said, hey, you know, you're buying this property, but you could do a little more for me here. Put my, put my, my granddaughter, my, uh, you know, daughter or whatever, the niece, you know, put her in there as a keeper. And so she served from 1858 to 1862. And then another man from 1862 to 1870, a William Brayton. And then from 1870 to 1889, a Charles Phelps. 
And then from 1889 to 1908, supposedly a Jonathan Bowman, but this is not, no connection to the Admiral. It's spelled differently. It's B-O-W-M-A-N as opposed to B-A-U-M-A-N. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, now, uh, then, of course, Edward Hill from 08 to 31. But there's some other folks that we have met, uh, the Martin family that came up and uh uh, there's there's some there's a, a name Fuller Leonard Fuller was another keeper I believe, and there again like I said they must have served in between times of the ones that I just mentioned to you, uh, but Clarinda was the one and only lady that that I know of that that served you know as a, a female keeper in that capacity. Right. Uh, like I said, there's still a lot of different things that uh, you know I'm still hoping to find more info on. I'd love to know the exact date when it was first lit, you know, at, at both lighthouses. We know approximately in 57, but we don't know if it was May, was it June, you know what I'm saying? Sure. Uh, the same thing goes for the, the skeletal towers. Now, my late father, being down at the little camp uh, at Isla Mott, as a young boy, he would come up, and this would be in 1933 to the lighthouse at Isla Mott, and he actually watched him build that skeletal tower. Huh. And he told me about it, and he says, you know, Rob, he says, there's a difference between these two towers, the one at Windmill. The one at Windmill was built in 1931, and the one at Windmill was all riveted together. And uh, the one at Isla Mott was all bolted together. And the one at Isla Mott is all galvanized, which is why it's in good shape. The one at Windmill was not galvanized, and it was very rusty. And there again, this is another part of the story. Coast Guard, after we did the relighting, and we had a handshake deal. Some of this is in writing, and some of it's a handshake deal with them. And they were going to fix up that tower at Windmill, paint it up, you know, get it stabilized and the ground around it as well. Because that lighthouse there, the skeletal tower in 31, was built on the foundation of the 1740 windmill that Sir Francis Foucault put up. And uh, you can still see the remains, the base of the old windmill underneath all this rubble. And anyway, like I said, they ended up uh, sending a Coast Guard contractor in November 15th of 2013. And they were going to take down the tower, the skeletal tower at Split Rock. And there again, I got off the phone with the Coast Guard, and they said, yeah, bro, we'll, we'll work with you. Well, the next morning, on the 15th of November, they showed up to my front door and they said, we're taking your tower down at Windmill Point. I said, geez, I thought we were going to do that. Nope, nope, that's that's what we're, we're going to do now. And they left the one down at Split Rock. So I explained to the contractor, a very nice man, Zach Holmes, his name is, out in the state of Washington, come all the way clear across the country to do this job. He said, what would you like to do, Rob? I said, well, listen, I said, what do you say? We save the base of it in the top 10 feet. We stick it off to the side. And hopefully everybody will be happy. And so that's what I ended up doing, Jeremy. So I got at least something left that tells the story, the 70-some years, that that served as a lighthouse, you know? Sure. Going back to, you mentioned uh, Candace Clifford, uh, one of the greatest researchers of lighthouses uh, this country's ever had who sadly passed away uh, a couple of years ago, much, much too young. She uh, initiated uh, digital archives for the U.S. Lighthouse Society, which is now named for her, the J. Candace Clifford Lighthouse Research Catalog, online uh, research catalog, on the, which people can access through the U.S. Lighthouse Society website, and I, I'm now involved with that. So I just want to let you know that I'm going to double-check uh, everything we have for 
both of your lighthouses, okay. and get, I'll get back to you on this and make sure that you have everything that's available that from the U.S. Lighthouse Society archives. You may already have everything that's in there, but I want to make sure you do. So maybe as part of uh, a visit, uh, you know, I do plan to visit this summer. We can go over everything and, and make sure that you, you have everything that, that is uh, in that archives. Well, that would um, be wonderful, so Jeremy. I'll make that part of my, my mission for my, for my visit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I remember uh, when I visited Isle Amat during one of my, my visits there some time ago. It was during the time your aunt, uh, Erica, your father's mm-hmm. sister, was living yeah. there. Yeah. That must have... She lived there for, for quite a few years, right? That must have been pretty Yeah, approximately pretty 20, 25 years. Um, yeah. Obviously, she was there in the summers of 1949 until, uh, you know, 1968, she ended up getting married. And uh, when her pa- husband passed away in 1981, she, you know, didn't want to stay where she was, and so we talked over things, and we ended up uh, winterizing it more so. And then we say winterize, make it more to up to standards for today's world. You know, yeah. obviously, both of these lighthouses, when we purchased them, had no indoor plumbing, no electrical. They were the way they were from the 1800s. Right. And uh, so anyway, what we ended up doing is we, we uh, put a small addition on for on the east side, the back side, opposite the lake, in other words, of, of the lighthouse at Isla Mott, and giving her a bedroom, a bathroom, and a laundry room all on one floor. And it served her well because she made it to age 93 and uh, was able to live there pretty much uh, most most of those years from from 83 till her passing in 08. What happened was, unfortunately, with, with age, she fell and she broke her hip uh, in 2004. And so after, after that, she didn't spend as much time there because the doctors obviously didn't want her, you know, on her own because she stayed there independently up till that time, you know, up to her 90th, basically her 90th birthday. Right. Uh, independently, which is uh, pretty impressive in its, in its own right. And uh, consequently, I don't know if you know the rest of the story, as old Paul Harvey would say. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the lighthouse at Windmill Point, when we bought it, the man that was selling it, his name was Mr. Emil Bear. And like I said, there's a lot of coincidence here. This man, Mr. Bear, when my parents were buying the place, uh, Dad said, why are you selling? Well, his wife was very sickly at the time. And they lived in Connecticut, and uh, it was a long haul for her to come up here, being sickly and so forth. And it was her wish that it be sold to somebody local. And so anyway, my dad, you know, told Mr. Bear, hey, look, anytime you want, he says, you come up here, the place will be yours. And so a few years went by after 63, around maybe 65, 66, Somewhere is thereabouts, Memorial Day weekend, he come up to the house in Champlain and come knocking on the door, and he says, gee, Mr. Clark, you remember me? He says, I sure do. He says, is that offer still good? He says, that says it sure is. So anyway, he come up, and uh, ended up taking a shine to my Aunt Erica. And in February of 68, the two of them got married. So the lighthouse, in a way, always stayed, you know, in both families. It was quite a story, uh, you know. I mean, not too not too many people can can have a story like that. That's true, you know. My dad was quite emotional at the end of it, towards the end of his years. He actually couldn't really finish the story; just uh, brought too many tears to his eyes, you know. Right. 
can you explain why the lighthouse tower at Isle of Mott is painted a rather unusual color? Yeah, I, it's people sometimes refer to it as, as, as pink. I'm not sure it's strictly pink. I'm not sure I'd call it pink. It's no. it, I've also heard it referred to as rose or salmon. And I yeah. think your I think your father used to call it Nantucket, Nantucket red. Is that what he yeah, used that, to say? Actually, the late George Clifford. Oh, that's it that. He's the one who called it that. Okay. George was George was for those who don't know about George. George was a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel who loved lighthouses, and we yeah. worked closely with George to develop a guide for Lake Champlain lighthouses, so that people would have you know more information and be able to at least have places that they could view them. Even if it was from a distance, at least they would know that they're not trespassing and so forth. So George always referred to it as a as a Nantucket red. Okay. Yeah, and, I knew uh, I knew George Clifford. I once uh, toured the Shelburne Museum with George Clifford, so he must have been the one who told told me the Nantucket <laughs> red thing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, well, that's another interesting story, I guess, uh, all in itself, uh, in its own right. But what happened was is that uh, the lighthouse, uh, Jeremy. When we bought it in '49, had been painted white with black trim, and it was peeling, rusting. It did not look too nice. And so Dad decided he got a bunch of his buddies and some big industrial grinders from the old Sheridan here, and they proceeded to grind the thing right down to bare metal. And I can only imagine how much work that must have been. And anyway, when they got down to the last coat of paint that was that color. And Dad says, you know, it's actually a primer. It's not really meant to be a top coat. It's a, an industrial primer. Okay. And Dad says, you know, I like that darn color because he, he, <laughs> he was able to get some of that paint because it's back, you know, in the time when you could get a lot of these older style paints and so forth. Yeah. And uh, he painted that, that color and it's been that color ever since, you know? Okay. And uh, it's actually a very bright red-orange uh, when you, when it's freshly put on. And it does fade out, like like all paints. It's, and there again, like I said, it really wasn't meant as a top coat, so it fades out much more so. And uh, I used to tell people, Elvis had a pink Cadillac. We had a pink lighthouse. But I changed it. Now I say it's for breast cancer awareness. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's perfect. Yeah, I like it. You know, I actually kind of like the color. It's it's unique. That's, uh, you know, I thought I had a mistaken idea that the lighthouse had actually been painted red at one time and faded and it, it, and it was decided to keep it that color. So I had, yeah. I had a totally mistaken idea about why it, well, why it was that Well, color. you know, you know uh, Jeremy, if you do look at the record books, they do refer to it as a red lighthouse. The red day mark. Well, that's because maybe that's why I thought that. And you know, quite yeah. a few cast iron lighthouses were painted red at one yes. time. What's been special about the Clark family's ownership of the the two lighthouses? Well, like I say, there again, I think we're kind of a, in the unique class. I don't think there's too many other folks, if there's even any, that actually have owned not one but two lighthouses. You know, and like I said, we've we've met some amazing people. I mean, the admiral being one of them. I mentioned this to you the other day. We weren't on record, but uh, Shirley Morong and Shirley's whole family was very involved with Lubeck and all up in Maine. And uh, one of the family members, uh, Fred, I said Fred Morong, wrote the famous poem Brassworks. Yep. And uh, it was wonderful to meet Shirley and uh, host her 100th birthday party at both of the lighthouses, meet all of her family. 
and uh, to talk with her and uh, you know get a lot of our memories. And uh, like I said, it's uh, it, it's uh, being involved with these these different folks that you normally wouldn't get to meet unless you did actually have these lighthouses, you know. Right. Well, the Morongs are one of the great lighthouse families in New England. Your family's uh, very special in the New England lighthouse world as well, and uh, it is it is special to be a big big part of that. Yes. Is there anything you can tell lighthouse buffs? Who might want to photograph your lighthouse and this this kind of brings us to a little little bit of a scent maybe a sensitive subject and you know i know that uh, things haven't always been been easy <laughs> and you know yeah. people have to realize that uh owning owning lighthouses is not all roses right. and, and and glory <laughs> you know yeah. it's yeah. it's That's tough and it's tough in so many ways it's 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 a lot of work and and there's a lot of yeah it's, it's not right. headaches and heartaches yes yes territory, territory. Yes. everything that glitters is not gold as the saying goes you know but yeah mm -hmm. and um, access is limited uh, to a large degree because of private roads at both at both lighthouses actually mm -hmm. so uh, maybe you want to comment on that a little bit without getting into tremendous detail but so sort, sort of a two-part question there and also any any recommendations for and I know there's no simple answer to that, but for people right. who might there, want to photograph the lighthouses. There isn't. There isn't. And, you know, uh, most of what I call the true lighthouse aficionados, buffs, whatever you want to call them, I have no problems with them. They go, they take their picture. Either they ask me beforehand or they don't, and they don't do any damage. Just those that are going up there to raise holy hell and do whatever damage they can, that's where the problem lies. And that's why... You have to keep these gates closed at all times because you just don't know who's coming, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, the biggest issue with with road situ situations has obviously been the lighthouse at Windmill Point. And uh, like I say, it's, it's an extremely long story, but without going into a lot of detail, when my folks bought the place in 1963, the access to Windmill, Windmill Point's on a peninsula for those that are listening that aren't that familiar and the lighthouse sits at the very end of this peninsula. And anyway, it was all virgin land in 1963. But uh, historically, there had been houses out there way, way back, like I said, when, when Francis Foucault built that windmill in 1740. All the, the farmers would come out there to grind their grain before the lighthouse was built and so forth. And uh, anyway, there was a small civilization out there, and actually Elberg more or less migrated to where it is today from Windmill Point because the French settlers were out there. And, and like I said, tremendous amount of history at Windmill because uh, the very first ferries went across from there. And, and, and this road that we have is very historical because these ferries would land, uh, you know, uh, the people by sail the whole length of the peninsula depending on the winds. And then in later years it became a power ferry so it was more specific as to where the landing point would be. But anyway, consequently, consequently what happened, uh, about 1970, 71, uh, an individual who will remain nameless here uh, started a corporation called Aquaterra to develop all of this virgin land again, build homes and so forth. And uh, he came to my dad one day and he told him, he says, hey, he said, oh, who I am, he says, in the he says, I'm going to develop this. And I said, Dad, said, that's your business to do what you want. And he says, you see this road you use? He says, no good. Can't use it no more. He says, you want, to, you want to get to your lighthouse? You're going to have to buy a road from me, just like that. And Dad says, look, fella, my deed clearly states that this is where the road is going out there. 
Well, anyway, needless to say, he ended up blocking our access, uh, big old ties and old junk vehicles and piles of dirt and whatnot. And anyway, what happened was is that we had to go to court, unfortunately. In the lower court, for three days it went on. This is 1973, January of 73. And it ended up in the Supreme Court. Not not the big Supreme Court, but the Vermont Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. In 1976, and we, the judge uh, awarded us that original vote to go out there. Well, fast forward to 2004, two years after the relighting. Then the whole thing started over again. And uh, all, by this time, all these homes have been built out there. And, of course, these people don't know the story. They don't want us going on in front of their, you know, houses, which is, you know, primary estate on the, on the lakeshore. I don't blame them, but, hey, they bought it knowing damn well that that's where that road's always been and always will be. And so, anyway, uh, like I say, it's a long story, but it ended up back in the Supreme Court for the second time. And eight days after my dad's passing, my dad passed on February 5th, 2009. Eight days later, we got a ruling again from the Supreme Court that we had won. And so anyway, we still have the original right away. And in the meantime, they ended up, they had built a road down the middle of the peninsula. And they ended up giving access to us on this new road and finally completing it. And we wanted the town of Elberg, which is where Windmill Point is, to take control of that road all the way to our property line so that we would not have any more issues well, they didn't want so it remains a private road to this day as we speak. And the, the families on the east side own half the road, and the families on the west side own the other half. Huh. And so, so consequently, uh, if they want to come out and stop somebody from you know going out there because you're supposed to be in quote unquote invited guest, if you're not invited, they can throw you the hell off, and there ain't nothing you can do about it which is sad. And, uh, you know, like I said, we still have that original right-of-way, so I've actually got two roads. Not that I need two roads, but I've got two roads now, the original right-of-way and this new road. And, uh, God, I don't know. Who knows uh, Who knows where it's going to go? I mean, we thought it was settled after the first Supreme Court case, but uh, you just never know. You know, greed and whatever raises their ugly head, and uh, away you go again. So as far as uh, you know, people who want to see the lighthouses, it's it's a little it's a little complicated. Uh, it is. Yeah, it is. yeah. Unfortunately. And, yeah, it's too bad that there's doesn't seem to be anybody operating uh, boat tours on on that part of Lake Champlain. No. Of course, there are out of Burlington, but they don't go anywhere near near you. Right. Way south of us by sixty miles, almost. You know. It's a, certainly a beautiful scenic area. Uh, it is. It too, is. Yeah, and the lighthouses would be very photogenic from the from the water. But uh, yeah, other than people bringing their their own uh, kayaks or or boats yeah. up there, it's uh, pretty hard to. Yeah, it's very isolated, very remote. That's the downside about being where we are. You know. Yeah. Out in the middle of no, a million miles from nowhere, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the that's the good and the bad, I guess. Right, but, the good, bad, and the ugly. Yeah, all three. Uh, let me ask you, what what is your hope for the future of the lighthouses at Windmill Point and Isle of Mott? Do you think there's, uh, well, uh, you know, un- under the circumstances, I think I'm almost answering my own question here, but being surrounded by other uh, private property, it makes it kind of difficult. The idea that maybe uh, some sort of nonprofit organization or something like that could get, could get involved with the management of the lighthouses. That seems problematic, but do you have any, any thoughts on any, any of that? Well, Jeremy, that you, you've hit the $64,000 question here. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, it's still evolving. This whole thing's still evolving. And uh, each day goes by, like I say, things are always changing, uh, getting new neighbors at both of these lighthouses, actually. And, uh, you know, with, with new neighbors and new people come new ideas and new thoughts. And uh, like I said, uh, my crystal ball is pretty foggy, as most of us have that same issue. I really don't know for sure, but one can only hope for the very best that can possibly be had. Well, it's hard to say any more than that at this point. It really, There's really nothing more we can say. There are wonderful properties. They're, they're, they're very historic. They're very beautiful. And the you and your father, your mother, your aunt, uh, the, the Clark family have been amazing stewards for those uh, properties for so many decades now. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I thank you. I congratulate you for, for everything you've, you've done. You have been uh, really important parts of the New England Lighthouse family for so many years now. And I know that, you know, I speak for so many Lighthouse buffs when I thank you for, for everything you've done. Yeah, well, thank you, Jeremy. It's always good to hear that. And, uh, and thank you for, for your, your friendship. And uh, I look forward to seeing you this, this summer. Uh, when my wife and yeah. I visit there, it's been too many years that it, since I've been there. Yeah, Rob Clark, I always say, don't don't be strangers. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Clark, thank you so much for spending this this time with me today. I really do appreciate it, and I well, wish you uh, yes, and thank you, and uh, a very merry Christmas and a happy New Year to to your, you and your wife and all your loved ones, Jeremy. I wish you all the same and and many more. Thank you so much, Rob. Okay, take care. Most of Lake Champlain's lighthouses are privately owned, and public access is problematic with many of them. But one of the Vermont lighthouses that's easy to visit is the Colchester Reef Lighthouse at the Shelburne Museum. It's one of 37 buildings on the grounds of the museum that has been called New England's Smithsonian. Colchester Reef Lighthouse used to be out in the middle of Lake Champlain. It was deactivated in 1933, and it fell into disrepair. Then in July 1952, Electra Havmeyer Webb, who had inherited a fortune in the sugarcane industry and founded the Shelburne Museum, purchased the lighthouse from Paul and Lorraine Bissett, who had bought it from the Coast Guard for $50. They were planning to use the lumber from the lighthouse for the building of a home. Before the building was dismantled, every part was photographed and numbered for identification. A crew of five men dismantled the lighthouse and took it to Shelburne by barge, reassembling it in less than a month. It was placed on a new foundation at the museum and much restoration was done over the next several years. Today it sits on the museum grounds near the landlocked side wheeler steamboat Ticonderoga. Inside the lighthouse building are exhibits on Lake Champlain history, steamboats, and lighthouse life. You can check out shelburnemuseum.org for information on hours and more. I definitely recommend a visit to the Shelburne Museum for the lighthouse, the steamboat, the covered bridge, the round barn, and all the other cool stuff that's there. That's all for this episode of Lighthearted. Thank you to our guest, Rob Clark, owner of the Windmill Point and Isle Lamont Lighthouses in Vermont. And thanks to all the volunteers, members, and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Be sure to go to uslhs.org to learn more about everything the United States Lighthouse Society has to offer, including tours, the passport program, and all kinds of educational resources. As always, thanks for listening, and keep, keep a, a good, good light. light. Everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine. Everywhere